Section 6 of Red Rubber The Story of the Rubber Slave Trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Red Rubber The Story of the Rubber Slave Trade on the Congo by Edmund Dean Morel. The History The International African Association. Recognition was accorded not to the Congo state, but to an association professing an international character and proclaiming before the world as the object of its being not the accumulation of rubber at the infinite cost of human life and suffering, but to the protection and civilization of the natives of Africa. Lord Percy, 1904 on october twenty first eighteen eighty four stanley on behalf of king leopold communicated to the british public a manifesto on behalf of the international african association it is a long document in it the association states that the sole object is to enable commerce to follow the association's advance into inner equatorial africa and announces that the sympathy and recognition of the government of the United States have been secured on these grounds. Throughout the Congo states, over which the association will exercise supervision, the European merchant may freely enter into commercial negotiation with the natives. Absolute freedom of trade is ensured. The association proposes to govern these native states on the Congo on the principles of law recognized by civilized nations and upon philanthropic principles. It aims to civilize Africa by encouragement given to legitimate trade. The Congo region is therein said to abound in produce of various kinds now lost to the world, but which thanks to the trade will enter into circulation. The natives of the Congo states will be enriched thereby because thanks to European commercial activities, which the association's policy, by granting them encouragement and protection, intends to promote, they will receive European merchandise in exchange for the produce of their country. Thanks to trade, the counterpart of its value, that is, the value of the produce collected by the natives, will return to Africa, for which it will prove a source of prosperity. So anxious is the association that nothing shall be allowed to restrict in any way whatsoever the development of trading relations between the white man and the natives on the Congo, that it will not even impose customs dues on European merchandise entering the country, believing such to be restrictive, a doctrine which is also that of Richard Cobden and John Bright. Author's note. This was specifically for Manchester consumption. The document concludes with the assurance that the association will never part with any of its possessions without stipulation that the buyer shall maintain the absolute freedom of trade and the complete individual liberty of trade which it has established. On December 15, 1884, declarations were exchanged between the British government and the association. The declaration of the association opens as follows. The International Association of the Congo, founded by His Majesty the King of the Belgians, for the purpose of promoting the civilization and commerce of Africa, and for the other humane and benevolent purposes hereby declares. The declaration thereupon sets forth 
that by treaties with certain native rulers, legitimate sovereigns, it has established and is establishing free states in the Congo region, whose administration, by virtue of these treaties, is vested in the association that foreigners will be guaranteed in the free exercise of their religion and the rights of navigation, commerce, and industry, and the right of buying, selling, etc. That everything possible will be done to prevent the slave trade and suppress slavery. The declaration of the British government is laconic and to the point. The government of Her Britannic Majesty declare their sympathy with and approval of the humane and benevolent purposes of the association and hereby recognize the flag of the association and of the free states under its administration as the flag of a friendly government. On the same date, a convention was signed between the British government and the association. It consists of ten articles, of which the most important are the second, fifth, and tenth, which read respectively as follows. Article 2. British subjects shall have at all times the right of sojourning and of establishing themselves within the territories which are or shall be under the government of the said association. They shall enjoy the same protection which is accorded to the subjects or citizens of the most favored nation in all matters which regard their persons, their property, the free exercise of their religion, and the rights of navigation, commerce, and industry. Especially, they shall have the rights of buying, of selling, or letting and of hiring lands and buildings, mines, and forests situated within the said territories, and of founding houses of commerce, and of carrying on commerce, and a coasting trade under the British flag. Article 5. Every British consul or consular officer within the said territories, who shall be thereunto duly authorized by Her Britannic Majesty's government, may hold a consular court for the district assigned to him, and shall exercise sole and exclusive jurisdiction, both civil and criminal, over the persons and property of British subjects within the same, in accordance with British law. Article 10. In the case of the association being desirous to cede any portion of the territory now or hereafter under its government, it shall not cede it otherwise than as subject to all engagements contracted by the association under this convention. Those engagements and the rights thereby accorded to British subjects shall continue to be in vigor after every session made to any new occupant of any portion of the said territory. The Great West African Conference opened its sitting in the name of Almighty God at Berlin on November 25, 1884. It closed them on February 26, 1885. Fourteen powers were represented. Count Bismarck began his opening speech with these words. In convoking this conference, the imperial government has been guided by the conviction that all the governments invited share the desire of civilizing the natives of Africa by opening the interior of that continent to trade. He defined the program of the conference as limited to the freedom of trade in the basin of the Congo and its mouth. Sir Edward Mallet, the British representative who spoke immediately afterwards, read a long address in the course of which he said, I cannot forget that the natives are not represented among us, 
and that the decisions of the conference will, nevertheless, have an extreme importance for them. The principle which will command the sympathy and support of Her Majesty's government will be that of the advancement of legitimate commerce, with security for the equality of treatment of all the nations, and for the well-being of the native races. Throughout the discussion, which took place before the final drafting and signature of the act, we find the British delegate constantly making suggestions on behalf of the natives, in regard to their freedom in commercial matters, in regard to slavery and the slave trade, in regard to the importance of alcoholic liquor. A perusal of these discussions shows that in accordance with the inaugural statement of the president, all the delegates were at one in considering the freedom of the natives to trade as the primary guarantee of their collective and individual liberty, their principal safeguard against oppression and injustice. Baron Lambermont, the senior Belgian delegate, opined that this freedom in commercial transactions would prove itself to be an impediment to the temptation of imposing abusive taxes. Baron de Courcel, the senior French delegate, was emphatic as to the need of guarding against the fundamental vice of 16th century colonization, which looked upon native peoples in the light of suppliers of revenue for a European metropolis. Count Lanet, the delegate for Italy, was anxious to secure that freedom of trade should be protected from interference not for a specific period of years, but for all time. Herr Vermin, the great West African shipowner and merchant of Hamburg, one of the experts consulted by the conference, explained the nature of West African trade, for example, the barter of forest or agricultural produce by the native owners and gathering of such for imported European merchandise. A special committee was appointed by the conference to prepare a report on the subject, and this report, signed by the delegates of Belgium and France, was submitted to the conference and adopted. All monopolies or exclusive privileges in matters of trade were prohibited. The words monopoly and privilege were analyzed etymologically. In short, every conceivable precaution was taken to ensure Lord Granville's determination that freedom of trade and the protection of the natives should be secured throughout the Congo Valley. The last sitting but one of the conference on February 23rd was noteworthy. The president opened it by reading out to the assembled delegates the contents of a letter communicated to him by the representative of King Leopold, in which the writer, Colonel Strauch, after notifying to the president in the name of the King of the Belgians that the International Association had concluded separate conventions with the delegates of all the powers represented at the conference save one, went on to say, The meetings and deliberations of the distinguished assembly sitting at Berlin under your high presidency have materially contributed to hastening this happy result. The conference to which it is my duty to render homage, would I venture to hope, consider the ascension of a power whose exclusive mission is to introduce civilization and trade into the center of Africa as a further pledge of the fruits which its important labor must produce. Then ensued a pathetic scene. The delegates, figuratively speaking, fell upon each other's necks and wept with emotion. The new state, declared Baron de Corsella France, has been dedicated to the exercise of every liberty 
Sir Edward Mallet of England followed with a panegyric of King Leopold. The whole world, exclaimed Count Lanay of Italy, can but testify to its sympathy and its encouragement for this civilizing and humanitarian work which honors the 19th century and from which the general interests of humanity benefit and will continue increasingly to benefit. The Count of Banamar of Spain shared the views of Count Lanay as to the humane and civilizing work of His Majesty the King of the Belgians, and likewise M. de Vind of Denmark and the representative of Sweden and Norway, M. Stanford of America, rendered homage to this great civilizing work. Count von der Stratenpontus of Belgium was grateful. He added, The Belgian government and nation will adhere, therefore, with gratitude to the labors of his high assembly, the thanks to which the existence of the new state is henceforth assured, while the principles have been laid down from which the general interests of humanity will profit. The general act of this West African conference as agreed to provides Article 1 that the trade of all nations shall enjoy complete freedom. Article 5. No power which exercises or shall exercise sovereign rights in the above-mentioned regions shall be allowed to grant therein a monopoly or favor of any kind in matters of trade. Foreigners without distinction shall enjoy protections of their persons and property, as well as the right of acquiring and transferring movable and immovable possessions, and national rights and treatment in the exercise of their professions. Article 6. All the powers exercising sovereign rights or influence in the aforesaid territories bind themselves to watch over the preservation of the native tribes and the care for the improvement of the conditions of their moral and material well-being, and to help in suppressing slavery and especially the slave trade. They shall, without distinction of creed or nation, protect and favor all religions, scientific or charitable institutions, and undertakings created and organized for the above ends, or which aim at instructing the natives and bringing home to them the blessings of civilization. Christian missionaries, scientists, and explorers, with their followers, property, and collections, shall likewise be the objects of a special protection. Freedom of conscience and religious toleration are expressly guaranteed to the natives no less than to subjects and foreigners. The free and public exercise of all forms of divine worship and the right to build edifices for religious purposes and to organize religious missions belonging to all creeds shall not be limited or fettered in any way whatsoever. Articles 13 to 25 deal with the navigation of the Congo, of which more anon. On August 1st, 1885, King Leopold notified the signatory powers that the International Association would be henceforth known as the Congo Free State and himself as sovereign of that state. Let us summarize these facts. 1. Sir Robert Moyer proposes to Lord Beaconsfield that the regime of the Congo should form a leading chapter in a large settlement of African affairs. Author's note, The Life of Lord Granville, Lord Fitzmaurice. 
One feature of this scheme is that the river be placed under some form of international control. Lord Beaconfield rejects the idea that Lord Carnarvon repudiates Consul Cameron's proclamation taking possession of the Congo Basin in the name of Great Britain. 2. Stanley's discoveries of the mighty fluvial system of the Congo bend all eyes toward Central Africa. 3. The King of the Belgians founds an international association ostensibly to promote civilization and trade in Central Africa. 4. France and Portugal take alarm and put forward political claims in that direction. 5. King Leopold, fearing for his enterprise, which has already begun to assume a political and, we may presume by subsequent events, financial complexion, appeals to the British government privately for support. 6. Portugal appeals to Great Britain likewise. She proposes that the River Congo shall be thrown open to the trade of the whole world, that the river itself shall be placed under an Anglo-Portuguese river commission to which the successive adhesion of the powers would be welcome. 7. King Leopold's scheme is not trusted by the British government, which favors the Portuguese proposal, and Mr. Gladstone recommends agreement while making it clear that England has no intention of securing an exclusive advantage for herself. 8. King Leopold is meanwhile making desperate efforts to capture British public opinion and influence it against the Anglo-Portuguese treaty. To the philanthropic section of the British public, he represents his enterprise as a great humanitarian undertaking. To the commercial world of Great Britain, he describes its main purpose to secure forever Central Africa to commercial liberty free from vexations, imports, and tariffs. He succeeds in raising a storm of opposition in England against the Anglo-Portuguese Treaty. 9. Germany is in a grumbling mood, and France, encouraged by the home opposition in England, protests against the treaty. 10. The British government, in view of these attacks, at home and abroad, abandons the treaty with Portugal, and henceforth supports King Leopold's scheme for the same reason which led it to support Portugal, but still mistrusting the king's intentions, determines that stringent conditions for the good treatment of natives and the freedom of commerce shall be secured. 11. Agrees to participate in an international West African conference suggested by Bismarck to settle the question. 12. Exchanges declaration and signs a convention with King Leopold's association on the lines above indicated. 13. Takes a leading part in the conference at Berlin, which results in freedom of commerce, prohibition of monopoly or privilege, and just treatment of the natives being solemnly proclaimed. A good many morals might be drawn from this record, but it will suffice to accentuate three conclusions, and these are a. King Leopold's International Association would have dissolved into thin air but for the separate and collective action of the powers in allowing it to blossom from a private undertaking into a great free area under the trusteeship of the sovereign of a small neutral European state. b. Without British sanction, cooperation, and assistance, no such agreement would possibly have been arrived at. c. But for the influence exercised by King Leopold and his agents upon British public opinion, the British government 
would never have given its sanction to the arrangement. End of section 6.